So I had just gotten a hit in Little League, and I was standing on first base, and the rules of that league were that I had to keep you know, one of the feet on the base, but after the pitch was thrown, I was allowed to steal second base. Now, I wasn't the fastest kid, wasn't the slowest kid, but it's Little League, right? And stealing second was pretty typical for everybody because it really forced the catcher to catch the pitch, it forced him to throw it down to second, it forced them to catch, and then put on a, a good tag, and that was hard for like fourth graders, 10 year or old, you know, that type of thing. And I was standing on first and I was playing really close attention to like the pitcher and the catcher and what was going on. And I didn't even glance, didn't even think about looking at my third base coach. He's the head coach. And he was trying to give me the sign to steal a base. Now you might have seen this like in, you know, in baseball or whatever, like they do the signs and they're like, you know, like all that type of stuff or whatever. Well, in this case, like he was, it was the nose and then the left arm, nose goes. That's the way that we remembered that. And so if he did this, then he would kind of wipe it away and we wouldn't do anything. And so he was like very intentionally kind of giving me a laser eye and just going like, okay, hey, Adam, here we go. But I was so into what was happening with the pitcher and the catcher wasn't really paying attention until I hear kind of a voice over my shoulder. It wasn't the voice of God or anything. It was the voice of the first base coach. And he was like, hey, Adam, like, look at your coach. That was worse because that was also my dad. Like the first base coach was my dad. He's got like, you're not paying attention. You're not doing what you need to be doing. But so I look over there and the first base coach is like the most animated I've ever seen him. And he's like, steal second base, right? <laughs> Everybody in the entire place knew that I was supposed to steal second except for me and the batter. See, he got kind of caught up into a little bit of the commotion and he thought that the coach was telling him to bunt. And so that's what he did. And the pitch was thrown and he squares around for a bunt. I take off for a second. You know, the batter lays down this beautiful bunt right down the first baseline. And none of the defenders in the field have any idea what to do on a sacrifice bunt with one out like in the first inning or whatever because you shouldn't be bunting in that situation. And they're all 10 years old. And they end up throwing the run, overthrowing the runner at first. You know, you've seen a little league game, right? And so it hits the fence and that guy takes off to second. I round third and I come home and I score on a bunt and the batter makes it to second and then they overthrow him at second and so he decides to bolt to third and then he grounds and he comes home and he ends up getting an inside the park bunt home run. <laughs> and really it's all because he got the wrong sign you know, from our coach. He got all, all mixed up. And sometimes when we misread the signs, you know, maybe some good things happen, but oftentimes when we misread the signs, we get a little confused, bad things happen, right? We've all gotten so signs confused in our lives. Like, do you ever get a sign confused in your dating life? You know, when you think somebody is interested in you and she's like, oh, she's flirting with me. She's like, she literally just said hello to be polite. That was it. Like, and you're like, oh, it's, Oh, you don't at all? Like, see ya? Goodbye? Okay. And so it's that type of situation, right? We get into those situations, or maybe you get into a situation and you read a road sign incorrectly, and like you're going down the wrong way, and people are blaring on their horns, and you know, all that type of stuff. We get into difficult situations because we misread or we get confused by the signs. And I think that that's actually true in our spiritual lives as well. You know, we don't know sometimes if something is a sign from God and we get confused, we overthink it, or sometimes, for being honest, we underthink it. And if we don't know what a sign means, it can lead to confusion. 
And it can lead to maybe a bunt home run, but maybe something a little bit worse. Now we're in week five of our kind of eight week summer series going through the book of Revelation. We've been calling it spoiler alert. And there's a lot of weird language. There's a lot of kind of different symbols and signs that come along with the book of Revelation. And that means that sometimes when we get those things confused, the book of Revelation comes with a little bit of frustration. And there are some things mentioned in the book of Revelation that we're even going to talk about today that are pretty wild. Now, there are a lot of people, maybe myself included, when I read the book of Revelation, I'm like, what? Like, what does this mean? That's fair enough. And that book, this last book of the Bible, can seem that way a little bit at first glance or first read if we don't slow down a little bit. But I want you to know, if, if you've ever been frustrated with like kind of evil of our world, or if you've been kind of discouraged by what's going on in your life, or you feel like fear is kind of ruling your life and you just don't know how to navigate it, you don't know what to do, you don't know where to turn, if you feel defeated, I think the book of Revelation is for you, and my hope is this message is for you too. Now remember, there are two ways to get the most out of this series. One is the Ridge Reading Challenge, and so we've been talking through some of these Old Testament references. There are a lot of them in the book of Revelation. So if you want some context, read along there. And you can also send some questions to 812-408-1188. Those are ways that we can kind of answer those on July 30th at 6 p.m. Now, here's a little bit of a recap. We're kind of a little bit over halfway into the book. So let's kind of just circle the wagons and, and think about it for a second. John wrote this letter this book that we call Revelation, to real people in seven churches in Asia Minor. And he wrote it really to comfort and to challenge churches to follow Jesus. And we learned that John's main symbol for Jesus is the slain lamb who opens this message, this scroll from God and explains what it means like for God's judgment to come, the end of the world, the day of the Lord, what it means for heaven to come to earth. There are a lot of different phrases that kind of mean that. And spoiler alert, Jesus wins. That's kind of the point of all of that. And if that sounds a little bit weird out of context, I get it. And so don't forget if you haven't seen all of these messages and listened to all of them, we have an online campus. There are ways that you can go kind of take a look at that on demand. And so if you're camping next weekend, you can still go to church. It still counts, okay? I know that you all got tally marks, right? No, just me? Okay, cool. Now, last week, we talked about these first two of part of what was sometimes called the Great Tribulation, or what I like to call them, because I like more words, three cycles of seven divine judgments. So there are seven seals, not like ocean seals. Ar, ar, ar. We talked about that last week. They're more like, like seals, wax seals, like on a scroll or on a, an envelope. And then the trumpets, and they kind of overlap. They're talking about God's judgment, but the trumpets actually come out of the seals. And so the whole point is they're reminding people, John is reminding people that in the end, there is judgment for right and wrong and good and evil. And there are some people who don't turn back to God, which does not end well for them. And there are some people who do turn back to God. And God's love is clear to those of us who follow Jesus, that as his followers, we're called to love God and love others and to imitate this slain lamb, Jesus, and to show the love of Jesus to everybody else. That felt a little bit like a previously at the ridge 
Have you ever seen a TV show kind of like that? That it's like, here's a recap of the last seven seasons of this show. And I've always thought, well, why didn't they just do it in a minute in the first place? And maybe you're thinking that because you're like, well, why didn't he just do it in a minute in the first place? But I like to hear myself talk, I guess. So (laughs) here we are. And we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, now that we're caught up, what is happening now. And we're going to pick up right after that point. We're going to pick up right after the seals and the trumpets. And we're going to talk about these series of signs or literally symbols. And that explores kind of this epic battle between good and evil and the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. So these several chapters are just jam-packed, what we talked about last week and this week, with symbols. And I'm going to encourage you to think of this a little bit more like the Cliff Notes version of Revelation 12 through 16. We're not going to cover every single symbol or anything like that. And I'm going to do my best not to lose the forest for the trees and not to lose the main point of the book of Revelation as we talk about these symbols. But here's the first one, and it's a doozy. The first symbol we're going to talk about is the woman and the dragon. Yes, there is a dragon in the Bible. Now, this is Revelation 12, starting in verse 1. This is John writing, Then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. So he's kind of pausing all of the divine judgment things, and he's saying, okay, we're going to take a a different note. And I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. That's all kind of Old Testament imagery there. And she was pregnant, and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. And then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns with seven crowns on his head. Now, this is the start of kind of this vision. This happens right after what we talked about last week. So John sees this incredible scene of a pregnant woman and a vicious red dragon in the heavens. So we're going to break that down a little bit. So the woman gives birth to a ruler, and that ruler is Jesus Christ. It's kind of the symbol, the child is a symbol of Jesus. And so the dragon, anybody have any guesses who the dragon represents? Yeah, the, Satan, the devil. It's red. That's the, the best hint that you can have. And so the dragon, Satan, after being thrown from heaven, seeks revenge after the woman. And the woman represents kind of God's people, the Old Testament and Israel and also God's church. So I'm just going to recap. The child represents Jesus. The dragon represents the devil. And the woman represents the church. And so the child, Jesus, finds protection with God in heaven, while the woman finds protection with God in the wilderness. And dev- the part of the point is the devil is behind all of this. And so this is important. Satan, the devil, is God's enemy and seeks to destroy God's people. That's kind of all of the imagery rolled up into kind of the point. And the image of the woman has this rich symbolism and actually draws on some other sources. And the people at the time that got this letter would have understood, it actually would have been a really familiar story. The the pregnant woman and the dragon is not a familiar story to us, but there was a famous story, it's not in the Bible, but in, in kind of culture at the time, about a fierce dragon named Python and a pregnant woman named Leto. 
So he's using the same characters. He just tells a different story. And it would be like John told the same story with like, I don't know, like superhero characters. And we'd understand who they, he was talking about because we understood kind of the context. And he's like, okay, you know, like, you know, the devil is Thanos and, you know, that, that type of stuff. Like, that's important for us to understand that they really did kind of understand the story and the imagery. But the point can't be lost. And let's add a little bit to it. See, Satan is God's enemy and seeks to destroy God's people, but God defeats evil. That's the point. That actually comes up over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. So sorry to spoil the end of it for you. But God's judgment in the book of Revelation is, is no joke. Like he has wrath. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next week in detail. But God's power is no joke either. And God has power to defeat evil for eternity. That's really what it's talking about. And can I tell you, it's interesting to me that I believe, maybe you do too, that God defeats evil for eternity, but we think he can't defeat evil in our own lives today. So that's maybe part of how we can apply that to our lives. See, God desires what's good for you, what's best for you, actually. And the symbol of the woman and the dragon and the child illustrates this. See, God wins because of what Jesus did on the cross, and you're a part of it if you follow Jesus. So I know, so that's just one of the kind of the signs and symbols and stories and visions that's in this section. And have you ever, uh, what are those called? Like the magic eye illustrations, you know what I'm talking about? Like they have the squiggly lines and you like get super close to them. And then it's like, it's a number seven and it's a giraffe. I'm terrible at those. Like I can't ever see it. I kind of need somebody else to help me out a little bit. And here, here's my hope is that, that this series in, you know, that we're doing this summer is kind of doing that. Like it's kind of helping us go like, I have seen it every once in a while when somebody says, put your nose like right there. And like you see, and oh yeah. I, I'm still like, is that a giraffe? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay. I see the neck, but okay, whatever. But the reality is we can understand some of this book of Revelation. So that, that's part of the point. That's the first symbol the you know, Satan and the dragon and kind of, kind of an interesting part of the Bible. Here's the next one. He talks about two beasts, the beast out of the sea and beast out of the earth. And this is, I think, maybe some of the most misunderstood part of the book of Revelation. So John receives this vision of two beasts, a sea beast and a land beast, and both beasts, this is important, work under the authority and the power of the dragon, which means that they're working under the authority of Satan. And so here's how the first beast is described. This is Revelation 13, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns, and written on each head were names that blasphemed when against God. Now this beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. So the sea leopard bear lion beast, that's, I don't know. It's actually a lot of imagery from Daniel 7 in the Old Testament. And in Daniel, there are four beasts and they represented four really powerful, but oppressive kingdoms. 
So this is kind of all four of those beasts crammed into one like a little kid drew it. And it represents one really powerful kingdom. So this beast pretends to have similar power and a similar mission to kind of lead the world and similar power over death that maybe we think Jesus is claiming to. And as then the beast is worshiped by people, but dishonors God and is working with the dragon. So what in the world? Like, that's quite an image, isn't it? Well, later on in Revelation, John explains a little bit of what this symbol means. He's really talking about a city with seven hills, and he's talking about the city of Rome. That's in Revelation 17. So there's this first beast, and here's kind of what the beast represents, a powerful economic political empire, kind of a world range empire. So that's what the first beast kind of represents. And the second beast that comes from the land is described like this. This is Revelation 13, starting in verse 11. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like those of a lamb. That's incredibly deceptive. But he spoke with the voice of a dragon. Looks like a lamb, but actually is part of the dragon's team. So the lamb in, in Revelation represents Jesus. But this isn't Jesus. It has a voice of a dragon. It's saying, looks like Jesus, sounds like Satan. And in verse 12, he exercised all of the authority of the first beast. So these two beasts are in cahoots. And he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. We'll get to it. The second beast deceives people. And he deceives people by doing miracles. And then encourages people to worship that first beast. These beasts are sneaky. And push people to maybe plausibly believe that they're good. So the signal that this first and second beast kind of come up with the second beast marks on the right hand and on the forehead, and they say, this means that you're a part of this kingdom. This means that you're a part of what we believe not God, but the dragon is doing. So that's the very famous and very misunderstood mark of the beast. Have you heard of that before? So remember, last week we talked about God marking people. So this beast does the same thing. John goes on to say this about the mark of the beast. This is Revelation 13, starting verse 16. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave. That's a way of saying like everybody in the world to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. So what he's saying is, okay, everybody is together and everybody is worshiping the dragon. So that seems odd to us, right? Like we think, okay, so like what does that mean? Like I'm going to accidentally get like the mark of the beast one day and like I won't know. So, so just to ease that fear for you, no. This is about worship. 
It's talking about our devotion going to the dragon rather than to Jesus. And this is actually something, this idea of a mark is something that's familiar to the people reading John's letter. This is referring to something called the Shema. Now the Shema is in Deuteronomy 6.4 in the Old Testament. And this is what it says, to love God with all your heart and soul and strength and to teach your household to love God and to bind the laws and the words of God on your hand and on your forehead. That's in Deuteronomy 6, 4. And Jesus actually quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love God with your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So this image right here is super familiar. This is kind of the anti-Shema. And in verse 17, this is kind of how he continues, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. And wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And we're going to get to the point of some of the vision and the symbols, but we kind of have to address this guy right here, don't we? Like, that is an incredibly misunderstood number. And I agree, boy, is wisdom needed here. Thank you, John, for saying that. Have you ever gone to the gas station and you're pumping gas and like it lands on 5666? What do you do? You all do it. You're like, Meh. <laughs> I know you do. This number is confusing. And honestly, I think there are a lot of opinions about it and that clouds up maybe our, our thinking about it today. So here's an example. I watched an incredibly in-depth YouTube video about how the Mark of the Beast 666, they're barcodes because it says in verse 17, no one could buy or sell anything without it, right? Does that sound familiar? I don't think it is barcodes, by the way. But if you Google it, with, be very careful if you Google 666, by the way, there are so many theories about what it could be. One theory was that it's the monster energy drink, which I think is hilarious. I really do. Because <laughs> it says, you know, unleash the beast is their, uh, is their slogan. Ronald Re Reagan, his middle name, or first, middle, and last name all have six letters. And so Ronald Reagan, 666. Hitler, 666. If you want to get a little uncomfortable, like recently a lot of people were talking about vaccines being 666. So remember... John is living under Roman rule, right? He's exiled because of his belief. And so the first beast represents this one global empire, Rome, and John calls it straight out. He says, wisdom is needed here, so let the one understanding solve the meaning of the number, which means that this is familiar, that we can understand this. And this is imagery that we're talking about in Daniel. There's more than just Daniel and lions in the book of Daniel. And he's talking about Rome and how powerful, how enticing Roman rule was. Why? Because they said, you don't need anything else. You just need to worship the emperor. You just need to be okay with us and you're good to go. So much, people that, so, much so that people were giving up their faith in Jesus because how enticing Rome was. So what does the mark of a beast mean? What does 666 mean? John says, calculate the number. And if you know the name of 
the guy they're talking about, that's easy. But if you don't, you start thinking it's monster energy drinks, right? So I do believe 666 is the number of a person, the name of a person. And when you use the alphabet and you add numbers like A equals one, B equals two, that's what John is talking about. It's got a fancy name for that. It's called gematria, G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A, gematria, but not with the English alphabet. This wasn't written in English originally. It was written in Greek, and that's what the New Testament was kind of written up as. So I want to give you, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a name, and you're like, oh my gosh, what if it's like, insert, you know, political party person? It's not. So, but I want to be careful with being definitive. I want to be really careful with being the definitive. I could definitely be wrong. There are really smart people who don't agree with this. There are really smart people who do agree with this. And I want to be incredibly clear to you. I don't think that this is the main point of the book of Revelation. I don't think it matters nearly as much as we act like it matters. Jesus wins is what matters. Following Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, like Deuteronomy 6.4, like the Shema says, that's what matters. The point is not you know, the secret code book point. But I believe that 666 might mean Nero Caesar. So Nero was an emperor of Rome. He was very famous for persecuting Christians. He was a huge threat to those who followed Jesus. And even though it's likely that Nero was dead at the time that this was written, there was a theory kind of in the world at that time, that he was actually still alive, because remember, he's a, he's a god in their minds, and he's coming back to take over the throne. So the dragon symbolizes Satan, the first beast symbolizes Rome, and this beast symbolizes a reminder of Rome, a tyrant ruler everybody would have remembered. But in the midst of dragons and beasts and numbers... Oh, dragons, beasts, and numbers, oh, bye, right? Don't forget the point. What's the point of this vision? Because it's not about 666 and stuff. Here's the point. Stand firm and remain faithful, even though evil can be so enticing. It can be so attractive. It can be so sneaky. See, Christians in John's day were persecuted, and I think Christians today are persecuted and were sometimes dismissed. And the point is we can stand firm. We can do our best to be faithful to Jesus, even though there is evil in our world and it's camouflaged and it's attractive and it calls to us. And that's really what John is saying. John is saying, stand firm. And there are some other visions that are in this section that we're not going to cover today. You know, following the beast, John sees a slain lamb, Jesus and his army. Angels are proclaiming the truth to people. There's a harvest of people who follow and affirm Jesus. There are others who don't turn back to Jesus. And John is telling us, look, God's patience with evil doesn't last forever. And if you follow God, good conquers evil. And then he comes to the seven bowls of judgment. So I'm going to spend the next four or five hours talking through the... No, I'm not. No, I'm not. So similar to the seals and trumpets we talked about last week, John uses this other sign from heaven, these seven angels with these seven plagues, seven bowls of God's wrath. 
And a lot of that comes from the book of Exodus and Old Testament stuff. But the point is, God is trustworthy. His judgments are always just. And just like the other seals and trumpets, many will reject God and they'll continue to reject God. But no matter what, God wins. He brings justice and he brings peace. And Revelation 16, 5, in this kind of section says this. It says, look, I will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Blessed are all who are watching for me, who keep their clothing ready so they will not have to walk around naked and ashamed. They're actually talking about Genesis and the story of Adam and Eve there. And over and over and over again, that concept comes up. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you going to follow the beast? Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow the dragon? Are you on good or are you on evil's side? And we're going to talk more about all of that over the next couple of weeks. But this concept, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you watching? Are you ready? Are you anticipating? Do you understand? So I kind of like to say it like this, anticipate the future with joy, not with fear. Because when you read the book of Revelation, sometimes we get so caught up into the signs and the images and the 666 and the dragon and all that stuff that we read it with a lens of fear rather than a lens of joy. So remember, if you follow Jesus, the book of Revelation is a book full of hope, not condemnation. God has been in control the entire time from the beginning through the end, and even though there is turmoil and there is suffering and there is pain and there is hurt, spoiler alert, Jesus wins in the end because God has held the keys to death and grave the entire time. He always has and he always will. So let me ask you, how do you approach your life? If you know this, you know the end of the story, how do you approach your life? Do you approach your life from a hope perspective or from a fear perspective? Do you approach your life like God is in control or maybe like he isn't in control? How do you approach your life? With a fear of failure maybe? With a fear that people won't like you or with a fear that you're wrong or with a fear that you're not enough or with a fear that you won't be able to make the ends meet with a fear that you're alone with a fear that you're ugly with a fear that you're weak with a fear that the cancer will come back with a fear that the cancer is back and now death will win and pain will win and suffering will win but the entire story of the Bible all the way back in the Old Testament love God love others that's the Shema and then Jesus says love God love others that's the greatest commandment and then in the last book of the Bible Revelation, it says, listen, love God, love others, stand firm because Jesus wins. And if we follow Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. Not of the end of the world, not of pain, not of judgment. If we have Jesus, we have joy, not fear. We have joy, not pain. We have joy, not failure. Joy, not sorrow. And we can anticipate the future with joy, not fear, because the end of your story, the end of the story has already been written.